Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Obama says it, no one messes with America. Scotland, it's yes or no time, and we answer your questions about the big day. And it's game on for Invictus. We have been handed an opportunity in surviving that, that, that we've been handed an opportunity that so many didn't get given. And it is our duty to make sure that we just smash it. Barack Obama has finally decided on a strategy to deal with Islamic State militants. In a televised address to the nation, he confirmed that American airstrikes will continue. He also stressed the fight will be taken to Syria, supporting opposition groups rather than the Assad regime. Our objective is clear. We will degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL through a comprehensive and sustained counterterrorism strategy. First... We will conduct a systematic campaign of airstrikes against these terrorists. Working with the Iraqi government, we will expand our efforts beyond protecting our own people and humanitarian missions so that we're hitting ISIL targets as Iraqi forces go on offense. Moreover, I've made it clear that we will hunt down terrorists who threaten our country wherever they are. That means I will not hesitate to take action against ISIL in Syria as well as Iraq. Well, I'm joined by the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Professor Clark, um, is this a strategy then? Uh, yes, it is. I mean, strategies are not usually blueprints for action which ex is specify exactly what's going to happen. A strategy is a decision to, to do something or do something differently. And here is the president saying, we are, going we are going after ISIL, no question, and he's going to do it by airstrikes. I mean, this also obviously hasn't come out of the blue. There's been a couple of weeks of very intensive diplomacy before and after the NATO summit, and there's quite a big diplomatic coalition behind this. We don't know how strong that coalition is in terms of commitment, but we do know it's there. And I think the president is very anxious to avoid the mistakes they made a year ago, he made a year ago, and were made on this side of the, the Atlantic a year ago with the Syria vote in just announcing something before they really had all their ducks in a row. So I think in this case, he's got it quite well worked out. And although we don't know what will happen next, we do know that there will be a, the beginning of a fairly long process to take ISIL down over the period of the next year or so, I would think. And who do we know that is on his side? Well, there was a meeting last night in Jeddah, uh, and uh, Mr. Kerry, who'd been around the Middle East, he was in Jeddah last night with uh, the Saudis, uh, with uh, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey was there, um, Jordan was there, and Jordan, the King Abdullah II of Jordan has been pushing very hard for this action. He was at the summit uh, last week, King Abdullah, and he's been saying to anyone who would listen that if the international community won't address ISIS, I will myself. And Jordan is a very weak player in, in world politics in power terms, but he is so worried by this and so threatened by it that he said, we'll act alone if people won't act together. So he's behind this as well. And then the Arab League made a statement during the week uh, mandating action. So there is a sense that the Arab world is now lining up behind American leadership, which, of course, is the way the Americans like it to say, you know, we will lead if you want us to lead um, and if you're prepared to help legitimise the whole operation. Christopher, what do you think of this strategy of crushing ISIS from the air? How long will it take? I mean, we, the whole thing about... Uh, it's, it, it's not simply ISIS. At the moment, there are in 11 different countries 
organisations rather like ISIS, some of them actually linked to them. Um, the same sort of principle has always been in Africa and in the Middle East. And I think there we've got the nub of the whole problem. This is not simply a war against ISIS. ISIS is a, is a sort of public target. We all understand what ISIS does because it cuts people's head off. Right. But the real story of, of the Obama, if there is a strategy, it's taking this terrorist, anti-terrorist war that stage further, which they've got much better at. I mean, when you consider the Americans probably saying at the moment they've had 12 quite identifiable attacks which they've thwarted in America itself from terrorist groups. And so this is going after terrorism on a wider, wider scale. And that is why it is a not simply a regional thing, it is an international uh, effort. And the difficulty is, is deciding what that effort should be who is going to run it, who is going to be on board, and at times people will, will flag and they'll drop off. So that's it, is terrorism, and it is terrorism identifying the different factions within the Shias and Sunnis. Professor Michael Clark, uh, Britain as yet has not committed to any airstrikes to crush ISIS. Um, the MOD, though, has delivered machine guns and ammunitions to, ammunition to Iraq and committed £1.6 million worth of military supplies. Is that the right thing to do? Uh, I, I think it is in the sense that you, the United Kingdom wants to be seen to be part of this strategy and the Prime Minister at the NATO summit was very specifically hinting that airstrikes were a possibility and I think they're more than a possibility, I think they're a downright likelihood. When do but you think it's going to happen, Michael? Well, I think we'll make an announcement reasonably soon, I mean, I would guess within a matter of days, um, but I think what he was doing was lining the public up last he week at, at uh, Celtic Manor to the idea that this was a possibility, but in his own mind, I think he'd already made the decision. Christopher. Well, let's let, let's get this right about what we call an airstrike. Uh, would would the would the British um, carry out an airstrike? Let's say in in Iraq, they would do so uh, with the Prime Minister getting up and say, "Last night, etc., etc., we we attacked these targets at the invitation or the request of the Iraqi government." The legalities, and I think the Iraq War, the Iraq War Two, anyway, proved that cabinets and not just the Prime Minister, very sensitive to taking legal action. And that is the most important part for the British government at the moment, which would be a small part in it. Mm. The Americans have got the same thing. The Americans would say, well, we don't have to take that because that legal side because Congress has already bought into it. Um, whether Congress buys into the budget of this whole thing is another matter altogether. Ma Michael Clark, it's been reported this week widely that Britain's military could be considering setting up or expanding bases in the Middle East. What do you know? Um, the, the, all three services have been re-emphasising uh, their footprint in the Middle East. So the Minhad Air Base in, in uh, Dubai has been considerably extended, and that was uh, being done about a year ago. And the army has been looking at <clears throat> having a, a battalion's worth of equipment, maybe even more than a battalion's worth of equipment at the Minhad Air Base, so the battalions could rotate through and train in desert conditions. They might also train in Oman, which gives you, you know, desert mountainous conditions. Uh, the uh, along Alongside the port facilities in Bahrain are being upgraded um, at the expense of the King of Bahrain, and the Navy's keen on that because they can get bigger ships alongside. Um, so Air Force, Army and Navy are all looking at strengthening their links in the Gulf, and they were doing that for perfectly sensible service reasons because of thinking about the future. But what, what we've created, in a sense, is a, is a new strategic, I would call it a smart footprint. This is not something that's come from Downing Street. I mean, it's not been done secretly, but, the, but what we've done 
by a, a process of ad hoc arrangements is actually create a, a sort of strategic re-emphasis on the Gulf, which is an entirely sensible thing to do at the moment because the, the Middle East is in meltdown. The Levant itself, from Lebanon to the Gulf, is literally melting down in a, in a, in a growing civil war. So the best thing we can do is strengthen our friends on the fringes of that conflagration and build up our own ability to deploy quickly if we have to in defense of our friends or even in defense of our own interests gentlemen stay with us sit rep with Kate still to come it's 1914 all over again the british army lands in france but why and invictus a victory for those they said couldn't do it pfbs sit rep if Scotland votes yes to independence when the polls open in a week's time, what will it mean for the military? We've asked this question many times on SITREP, and as yet we've no definitive answer. Yesterday we asked for your questions on the issue via our social networks, and we've had a great response. Professor Michael Clark and Christopher Lee will attempt to answer those questions, along with Dr Colin Fleming, who's a research fellow at the Scottish Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh, who joins us now. Welcome, Dr Fleming. Uh, First one to you, if you don't mind, um, and it comes from John Chamberlain, who asks on Facebook, if Scotland gets independence and moves Faslane Naval Base, who's going to pay for it, and does the Navy have a contingency plan? This will be obviously affecting Trident. Yeah, well, very good question, and it's one of the, the issues that has dominated the debate for the last two years, what happens to, to Trident in the event of a yes vote. Um, I think it's worth saying... Firstly, that the, the SNP itself, the Scottish National Party, are opposed to Trident, but uh, the Scottish Government and the SNP have softened their stance, I would say, in the White Paper somewhat to, to regards with the removal of, of Trident. Um, and the, I think there's room for negotiation there. Would it move? Yes, I think it would definitely move. Um, but I think there's questions over the timeline in it for all sorts of reasons, because Scotland would need to, ha to be cooperating with the rest of the United Kingdom on defensive matters, uh, because Scotland, uh, the Scottish Government want to join NATO. I think there's room for movement. Has there been uh, any contingency planning? Uh, I don't think there's been much contingency planning on the side of uh, the UK Government, uh, certainly not much I've heard of the Royal Navy. Um, and I, I think... Uh, Professor Clark, one of his colleagues, uh, Malcolm Chalmers at Russia, had a, 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 published a very interesting report a, a few weeks ago called uh, Relocation, 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 which kind of uh, puts some of these uh, questions into perspective and asks what can be done mm. uh, about moving and moving that. So it's, it's an open question um, and it has still not been answered, I think. Uh, Christopher, uh, Stephen William Jameson says, why isn't Trident based down in England? Um, but because there's not many places you could put it. In fact, there probably aren't any places you could put it. If you really want to move Trident, uh, I was in Washington about eight weeks, nine weeks ago, uh, and somebody at the Pentagon said to me, yeah, we can fix that for you. We'll have it here. And he said, we've got about a 10-year uh, time factor to sort of think it through. And they were sort of dismissing it. But, yeah, you could, you could put Trident don't forget, Trident operates far away from the shores anyway. Mm. Um, Professor Michael Clark, one for you from Facebook. Zoe Sharp says, uh, she asks, what would happen to the UK forces who are based in Scotland? Would we be moving back to England? She says, as a family, they're very concerned about this, obviously. 
Yes, and I mean, uh, Colin's absolutely right when he said there's, there's no planning going on in the uh, MOD for this because the British government took the view that they would not plan for a yes vote because that would make it more likely and they've you know, maintained the idea that unless or until it happens, we're not going to think about it. Now, you can argue about whether that was right or wrong, but there, there is no official guideline on any of these issues. So we have to take you know, other precedents um, as, say, when Ireland achieved uh, independence after the First World War and you think about you know, what happened to the Irish regime. What almost certainly would happen, in my view, is that the present Royal Regiment of Scotland might be, would be drawn south of the border, possibly renamed, maybe go back to the borderers or something like that, <clears throat> and it would come south of the border in some way, and that the soldiers would be given the choice of uh, you know, joining a new Scottish regiment or staying with that regiment in, its, in a new guise. But it would be inconsistent, of course, for British Army regiments to stay north of the border in the event of a yes vote. And it would come down to, I think, personal choices. The general view in the, in the military, certainly in the army, is that the vast majority of those in Scottish regiments would want to stay in those regiments you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in the rest of the United Kingdom, that not that many would want to join new Scottish regiments but we don't know. Hmm. Just, just, to, just to expand on that, Matt, Matt Wincup has asked, me and a good handful of lads from the camp are concerned as we're Scottish with our families in Scotland, but we're based out, down in England with no input into this at all. Say it's yes, are we just going to have to pick and choose between staying in England or moving to Scotland? You, yeah, well, almost certainly you, you wouldn't have to move to Scotland unless you wanted to join a, a new Scottish regiment. Mm. Um, but you would be part of, I think, renamed and re-rolled regiments that would be part of the, that would still remain part of the British Army. But it, it does mean that, that I, I think, you know, native Scots who are in the British Army for, you know, the, all of their own reasons might be faced with something of a challenge, that's for sure. Christopher. Here's a thought. Um, what happens to the name, the Coldstreams, the Scots Guards? Uh, the dragoons, etc. Um, it's all right. Regiments have always been elsewhere. You know, they've been based at Windsor. They're for, they're for London duties, uh, and the Black Watch. Where were they, uh, Mike? They were Tidworth, weren't they? Which is yes, a he yes. heck of a long way from uh, uh, from Scotland. But these famous names mean this cap badging means an enormous amount to people. It also means a heck of a lot when it comes to recruiting. Dr Colin Fleming, any thoughts on that? Yeah, if I could just come back to, to some of these very interesting points and good questions. Uh, I th my own opinion, having kind of looked at this and spoken to people over the last two years, that the, the idea that Scotland will have major recruiting problems is, is, has been overplayed. I, I don't expect there to be uh, major recruiting problems over the long term. I think it's worth point, worthwhile pointing out that any, if there was a yes vote, if there was, then there would be a transition period. Mm. Um, the Scottish Government, for their part, have said that any serving personnel would be given the choice if they wanted to stay with the rest of the United Kingdom or join a Scottish force. Uh, and the terms and conditions would continue as, as were if they joined the Scottish force. So, so it would be up to the individual, I think. That's absolutely of course, true. Of course, we, we are talking big ifs here, aren't we? Christopher, uh, absolutely. Uh, Christopher, yeah. if there was a no vote, would everything stay the same? Or is this all a game changer anyway? Yeah, nothing, you know, nothing changes the, say, the same after the 18th. There are too many questions that have been asked. There's another side of this, right? It's interesting. You're going to ask the royal family, who seem to be colonels-in-chief and, and whatever of a whole bunch of uh, Scottish-based uh, 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 regiments, 
what happens to their role? I mean, these are small things in, 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 the, in the bigger constitutional discussion, mm. but they're the sort of things that the individual feels very strongly about. Yeah. I mean, I, I would just, just uh, if I could there, I mean, <coughs> if there is a yes vote, the, the, the Queen would still be the Queen of, uh, of Scotland. Uh, I don't think there's any uh, moves to try and change that. I don't think that would play particularly well in Scotland, uh, to be honest. Um, and therefore these rules would continue, I think. There's a question here, Stuart Nielsen has asked, if there is a yes vote, what is the proposed plan for Scots who are reservists? Dr Fleming. Yeah, <clears throat> yes, um, I mean, it's, it's very similar to, well, what we know of the Scottish Government's uh, proposals. Uh, they are, are similar to um, new personnel and uh, what would be a, a new Scottish Defence Force. So they would have the same uh, rights as they do presently. One of the, one of the interesting um, aspects of the White Paper is that it gives a commitment to look after the, the, the Army Covenant and the Military Covenant in, in whole so there would be no redundancies um, in a Scottish force redundancies in a Scottish Defence Force. So there's obviously an attempt here to try and sway some people there with, with better terms and conditions if, if they can. Um, again, we, we, we don't know what the UK government are thinking and I, I think until last week really there's not been much thinking about this um, mm. and that, that might have to change very quickly. Professor Michael Clark, Christopher Howe has asked a question about what kind of defence Scotland would have on its own. Um, what about, we talked a little bit about the army setup, but what about the Royal Navy and the RAF? Well, uh, the talk at the moment is of a legacy force, so uh, the uh, you know, SNP are talking about having uh, a number of uh, Typhoon aircraft, six or eight Typhoon aircraft possibly, and a couple of the uh, Type 23 and or a Type 26 uh, frigate with a small coastal defence force, really. Um, the, the problem with that is that although it, it makes sense in a, in a legacy argument that Scot an independent Scotland will be entitled to a tenth of the force structure which the United Kingdom presently has, um, the issue is how do you keep those systems going? I mean, they're very sophisticated systems. You need a lot of backup and a lot of infrastructure, not just the, not just the infrastructure but all the training that goes with them. And so in, it is feasible, but, the, but in the end, an independent Scottish government would rely for at least one or two generations, I would have thought, on technical support from the rest of the UK. I mean, sending their officers to uh, to UK training, having uh, uh, UK um, forces service some of their equipment, doing special deals with other companies. It wouldn't be easy, um, but if you're going to run sophisticated systems, you do need an awful lot of backup, which at the, at the beginning would be just too expensive to afford. OK, well, we're going to leave uh, Scottish independence or not for this week, and, and I guess we'll be returning with plenty more to say at uh, this time next week. Dr Colin Fleming, a final word from you. Where will you be next Thursday? I will be in Edinburgh next Thursday. The, the centre is running a, an all-night uh, session for journalists and uh, <laughs> we're watching the results. Well, very good luck with that. <laughs> Dr Flame from the University of Edinburgh, thanks for joining us today. The latest phase of the British Army's First World War commemorations, Operation Reflect, is underway. A multinational group of students, officers and academics are undertaking the British-led staff ride to France and Belgium. More specifically, they're visiting what was the Western Front for a long period. BFBS presenter Steve Britton is with them. Hello, Steve. Uh, first of all, what's a staff ride? 
Well, I guess a star fried could be likened to a battlefield tour, but with added complications, because so much preparation goes into it. Uh, there is so much reading involved, and it is a genuine study. And what will happen is they have groups of students who will then break away once they've had a lecture from one of the academics here. And we've got some big names here, including Professor Hughes and they will discuss various questions that they've been given. So far more thinking involved, and they've been really beasting them on that front over here, it's got to be said, but a lot's been learned. You broke up on the surname, I think you were saying Hugh Strawn. Um, how does it all fit in with the rest of Operation Reflect? Well, we had a Rusi conference uh, that was back in phase one and they were looking at the First World War origins and some of the command failures or crisis management failures, as they say. Um, we've got the staff ride now, phase three, later in the year, Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. will be an exploitation conference to discuss the lessons learnt from this week and then all of the findings will be published next March for wider reading. And just as a bit about the issues you've been looking at. Well... Interoperability obviously has come to the fore, bearing in mind the multinational flavour of the delegates who are attending. And also, they've been looking at the learning curve, which Christopher will presumably elaborate on, possibly. Um, how the war evolved and how it evolved strategy and some of the innovations that had to be employed on the technical front as well. So, there's some of the main things. Brigadier Alan Mallinson in the army for 35 years he writes about military history nowadays and he's the acknowledged expert on the first 100 years of the first world war he started by addressing why a year that was a war that was supposed to have been over by christmas dragged on for years to come and he referred to the quote from the australian engineer who said the western front was an engineering problem you can say that part of the answer to the fortress engineering problem was um, the development of the tank the, uh, the change in artillery doctrine. It took a long time to get that in place. Meanwhile, because of the requirement for the offensive spirit, attacks continued to be mounted with insufficient resources, with no way, frankly, of breaking through the fortress barrier. The so-called learning curve of the British Army for a long time was simply a flat line, in my view. The subject of shell shock was linked to current thinking, not surprisingly, by Professor Simon Wesley, who's um, another of the academics who's attending this. Strong leadership, he said, results in seeing four times less mental health problems, and that is what this staff ride is all about for the students, future leadership. And that's the thing that you can do, that's your job, and you probably actually do more for the prevention of mental disorder than do your doctors, your RMNs, and so on and so forth. As time passed after World War I, the image of the shell-shocked soldier, which had not been a particularly big one during the war, became larger and larger in literature, in the collective memory. And people turned more and more against the way that they felt the military dealt with shell-shock. They tended to dwell on some of the bad things that had happened. And I think that will happen again. I think that the public will think how we manage mental health problems not the physical health problems, which we do very well, but the mental health problems may represent one of the biggest legacy issues that the current campaigns face and plays a very, very large part in our view of what the First World War uh, meant to society. Uh, Steve, just very briefly, where are you and what you got on next? Well, we visited many iconic sites. I'm standing on the site of what was the Battle of Cambrai. 100 years ago, we've been to the Ypres Salient Menin Gate for Ceremony of the Last Post. And later on today, we'll be going to um, a reception in Arras. Steve Britton, thanks for your time.
More than 400 wounded servicemen and women from 13 different countries are taking part in the Invictus Games, which opened in London last night. The event is based on the American Warrior Games and has been organised by Prince Harry. I'm joined now by Cassidy Little, who's reporting for BFBS Radio from the Lee Valley Stadium. Good to talk to you, Cassidy. Uh, tell us a bit about the atmosphere. Sounds very, uh, sounds like it's buzzing. It is. It's electric. I would almost say that it's fiercely friendly. It seems all the competitors are, are all friends and all pushing each other along until they're on the starting line, and then all of a sudden they're, they're absolutely going for the victory. So it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a really kind of comforting feeling, promoting all those things that we were taught back in basic training. Yes, because, of course, you are a member of the military yourself, aren't you? I am, yes. Yeah, I'm a serving Royal Marine Commander. How important are these games to people like yourself and people who've been injured? This is proof. This is proof to, to the British public, to, to everybody who's watching it, who's everybody supporting it, that we are capable of doing so much more than, than you think we are. I mean, it's beautiful to watch when somebody who has one limb is able to run down a track and prove that he can beat the guys next to him. And that spirit of competition, that doesn't die when you're blown up or when you're shot or when your military career is taken from you. So it's, it's incredibly important that those aspects that, that are embedded in the military today are, are promoted at events such as this. And Cassidy, you say we because you yourself have been injured, haven't you, while you've been on duty during a tour. Just tell us what your injuries are. Yes, I was uh, blown up on Herrick 14 where I lost some friends in my right leg. Um, I guess that's kind of why this is such an emotional event for, for everybody here, uh, including myself, because it doesn't feel like it's an us and them. It feels like we, uh, the spectators, are here to support, and they're part of the family, and the, the competitors feel like they're part of the spectators. Like Everybody is all for one, one for all down here at, at Lee Valley. And Cassidy, you made a program for Forces TV to tie in with the Invictus Games where you talk to fellow injured Marines. Let's hear a little bit from that series. We have been handed an opportunity in surviving that, that, that we've been handed an opportunity that so many didn't get given. And it is our duty to make sure that we just smash it and we thrive with it and we take it to the next level. You've never really lived until you nearly died. You just experience life in a whole new way. Good line. It's like, like that. I was 22 years old and I got injured. Well, I've got potentially another 50 years to live. So my normal, which was 22 years, my normal could be the rest of my life, which could be 50 years. Well, my normal could be a lot better than the first 22 years of my life. So, Cassidy, we heard there from people you knew before you were injured. Is that right? Yes, yes. We were all on Herrick 14 together. Um, we've got Paul Weiss, MC in there, Luke Darlington and JJ Chalmers. And it was quite an informal format, wasn't it? Well, one of the things I wanted to push, one of the things I realised was that when you get the lads alone, when you sit them down around a table and you drink a few tins, it, the stories do come out, the experiences do come out, the ups, the downs, all that comes out because that's what we're there for is each other and that's who we like to share those stories with and so when I approached the guys and said look I don't want to do a montage I don't want to do a, a documentary I just want to do what we always do on a you know Wednesday night sitting around the barracks which is grab some tins of beer and and talk about what we've been through and it turns out that that's uh, that's exactly what you see and Cassidy did, did come anything come out of this talk with your fellow servicemen that hadn't been said before 
I think that some stuff came out that I didn't know about some of the other com um, uh, some of my compatriots. I, I, some of that stuff came out that I didn't I didn't expect to come out. Um, some of the stories were told, and some of the details. I can remember J.J. Chalmers talking about his fingers hitting the back of his hand, and or when Paul Weiss talks about touching his neck and his fingers going into his neck and he, he feeling the blood. That those details I didn't know. I didn't I didn't know intimately, but now I do, and and it just makes me think. I mean, how many more injured personnel from all across the board have got stories like this? Who who would love to share them and love to talk about it and love to, to be a part of, of what we're starting here. Well, listen, Cassidy, good to talk to you, and I, I look forward to hearing your reports on BFBS Radio, and thanks for your time. That's Cassidy Little, who you can see on How to Survive an IED and Win. It's on 10 o'clock tonight, uh, British time on Forces TV, and will be repeated over the next week on the channel. Just very briefly, uh, Christopher, pronunciation, correction from our Latin professor here on the name of the games. How do you say it? Well, Church Latin, Invictus. Invictus, not Invictus. Lovely. Good to know. Good. good to know. And let's return before, before we finish today to that speech by President Obama where he talked about American leadership being at its best. Yeah, um, it's interesting that what Obama was really saying last night was that he was handing on a war to his successor. And wars don't stop for American elections. And he's going to be handing them on just as all politicians hand on to the next man. We're in this for the long haul. That's what it was really all about. A decade, perhaps longer. Well, that's all we have time for for now. Our thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Dr Colin Fleming from the University of Edinburgh. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Bye-bye for now. Invictus. Invictus. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.